Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy word. We will be reading from Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 20. These are the words of God. Samson went to Gaza, and there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson has come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, let us wait till the light of morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight, and at midnight he arose and took hold of the door of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulder and carried them to the top of the hill that is, at, that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved the woman in the valley of Sarek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies and by what means we may overpower him that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, "The Philistines are upon you, Samson." But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner inner chamber. But he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with a pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And, he said, and she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, a razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb, and my head is is shaved. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." 
When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called the man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she, became, then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you for your precious, holy, holy word. We thank you that it is sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you, Lord, that it does not fall to the ground, and we know that that will not be the case this evening. Lord, I pray that you would empty me of myself and that you would fill me with your spirit as I seek to herald your word to your people. I pray that all here would have ears to hear and eyes to see, Lord, the precious truths of your word. And may you use these words by your spirit to edify and to strengthen your people as we walk with you this night and throughout the rest of this week. And we do ask all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Whether one is a Christian or not, we all tend to have a natural excitement when it comes to the idea of heroes. Our iterations of these heroes comes in various shapes and sizes. Some of them are natural heroes like Batman and Indiana Jones who don't have any special powers. We also have heroes with special powers like Spider-Man, Superman, and Captain America. As much as I like all of these heroes, I don't find them to be very realistic depiction of what a real hero looks like. When we think of heroes, they are typically upstanding citizens, courageous, with good character, and with good integrity. But is that really what a depiction of a hero is? I do not claim to be a movie buff like Leandro, but I do know a little bit about them. I have found that the most realistic type of hero is actually the anti-hero, which has become much more popular in our day. An anti-hero is a hero that is heavily flawed. One of the best examples of this type of anti-hero is Hancock, if you've seen the movie. When you think of someone like Superman or Batman, when they found out about the crime, they usually swoop in to save the day in an almost flawless fashion. They capture the criminal and the crowd cheers them on. That is not the case when it comes to Hancock. When Hancock finds out about a crime, he has to be awakened from his sleep because he is too inebriated to know what is going on. As he, flies through the, as he flies to the crime scene, he goes through millions of dollars worth of highway signs that fall on police cars. And the crowd is wondering what in the world is wrong with this guy. If you want to talk about a realistic hero, that is about 
as realistic as it gets. And in that sense, Samson would have to be one of the most realistic heroes of all time. And we will see this in three points this evening. Point number one, you reap what you sow. Point number two, no love, no marriage. Point number three, Samson in the hall of faith. When my wife and I first got engaged to be married, we tried to be intentional about getting advice from older couples in our church who had been married for a long time. The most memorable and wise things that we heard were very often the most simple. One husband who had been married for over 50 years said that the key to marriage was found in two words. Yes, ma'am. Whatever your wife says to you, you reply by saying, yes, ma'am. It took a while for me to get that one, but that was probably the most helpful piece of advice that I received. Also, when Daphne was pregnant with our first child, we did something very similar. We sought advice from couples who had children. And again, the simplest wisdom proves to be the most Memorable, And this nugget came from our pastor at the time. He said that one of the things, the most important things that your children need to understand very clearly is that sin has consequences. And we see this being played out in Samson's life in a multitude of ways. The first thing we see in our text is that he mingles himself with other nations. We read in verse 1, that he fornicated with a prostitute in Gaza, and in verse four, that he loved the woman in the valley of Sarek. This is something that was strictly forbidden by God. I believe Leandro referenced this text in Deuteronomy last week, but I think it's worth reiterating and reading, actually, and I'm gonna read that now. And it's concerning other nations as they are entering the promised land. It reads as follows, do not intermarry with them, Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons because they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will will burst against you and he will swiftly destroy you. You may recall earlier in the book of Judges, we see that God leaves the other nations to prepare Israel for war and to see if they would keep this very commandment found in Deuteronomy. Let's look at the results of what happened in Judges chapter 3. Let's see how they did. Beginning in verse 7. Thus the Israelites continued to live among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took the daughters of these people in marriage, gave their own daughters to their sons, and serve their gods. So the Israelites did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. One of the things we see in this portion of Samson's life is the fruit of not keeping this very commandment from Deuteronomy. All of the back and forth with the riddles, the Philistines hiding out to kill him, and him getting with Delilah are all a fruit of not keeping this commandment. They became a perpetual thorn in the side of Israel, 
and they remained a thorn in the side of Samson. I would only, I would imagine that Samson's parents had this in mind in Judges 14 when they said to him, can't you find a young woman among your relatives or among any of our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, just as a quick point of clarification, there are some people who have used this text and others like it to advocate not marrying people from other ethnicities or people from different cultural backgrounds. However, that is a misunderstanding of the bigger issue here. This has much more to do with marrying someone who is worshiping another god or a false god than anything else. I believe it was Henry Ford who said of the Model T Ford that you could have any color of it you wanted as long as it was black. Likewise, if you are a Christian, you can marry anyone you want as long as they are a Christian. Point number two, no love, no marriage. If I could summarize this portion of Samson's life, I would summarize it with Proverbs chapter 19, verse 13. A foolish son is ruined to his father and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. I can only imagine how Samson's father was feeling at this time. There is a popular idiom that many of you know that says that love is blind or that love should be blind. I think in some ways, love should be blind. We should seek to overlook the faults of our spouses and others, but that is not what we have here with Samson. What we have with Samson is a corrupt, twisted, perverted version of love that is really more akin to lust. This type of quote-unquote love is of the dangerous sort, where it goes beyond overlooking the faults of others, and it gets to the point of overlooking things that actually bring harm to both parties or to other people. I also want to note that it doesn't say that Samson was married to Delilah, where it says in verse four that he loved her. The Hebrew word there can have the meaning of loving in more of a lustful sense. As Brother Gleason mentioned a few few weeks ago, he had an eye for Philistine women and it didn't end there. By all indications, it seems that they may have been shacked up. I heard a Christian marriage counselor once say concerning this type of arrangement that it is a commitment to no commitment. In other words, you live as married people do, but you can exit stage left at any moment because the bond of marriage is not there. There is no reason to remain loyal, and we see this with uh, Delilah's Judas-like behavior where he is looking to sell, she's looking to sell Samson out for 1,100 pieces of silver. Not only is there no reason to remain loyal, there is no reason to have any trust in the other person. There is a lack of trust. Think about the person who you are most closest to, your wife, your parents, your friends, your family, someone you know you can trust to tell just about anything. Imagine for a moment 
that person asks you the question, what is your greatest weakness? What is something that would cause your strength to fail? If you trust that person, you would most likely be willing to reveal that information to them. But if you don't trust that person or sense they will misuse that information against you, you would be reluctant to answer the question or you may not disclose, um, you may not completely, honestly answer that question. I can only imagine the look on Samson's face when Delilah said to her, tell me how you might be bound. It seemed that he senses Delilah was up to no good, so he doesn't tell her the truth about where his strength lies on three separate occasions. On the fourth occasion, though, Delilah pulls out the kryptonite. There are a few men who have been tortured to within an inch of their life and not given away top secret information. But there may be fewer men who would not succumb to this type of interrogation. What is this form of interrogation? It is called nagging. Verse 17, and when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death, and he told her all his heart. I would like to remind everyone that this approach of Delilah with Samson to getting what, he want, what she wants is descriptive and not prescriptive for us. I know that men are capable of nagging too, but that is typically the exception and not the rule. I also want to say something to any pragmatists that might be within the hearing of my voice. If you are only thinking practically, nagging can be a very effective way of getting what you want out of somebody. Whatever works, says the pragmatist. You might see nagging as nothing more than a means to an end, but the scriptures have a very different approach. In fact, it is the exact opposite of what Delilah did. We see in 1 Peter uh, where it talks about a wife winning her husband over without a word through her conduct and with a quiet spirit. I've lost count of how many times my own wife has done this with me. Trust me when I tell you, it can be very effective, especially over time, and I'm about as hard-headed as it gets. As a believer, when you are sinning against your spouse, if you have any sense of conviction in you and you are receiving kindness in return for your meanness, you will feel like the biggest fool and be repentant. It doesn't always happen quickly, and some spouses spend years and years responding to being mistreated with good conduct and with a quiet spirit without success. However, that doesn't change how we ought to respond in these types of circumstances. Point number three, the hall of faith. Let's review Samson's life a bit so far in case you missed the previous few sermons in the evening. So far, he has taken a wife of the Philistines, 
We see that he has sinned by going into a prostitute in verse 16 of our text. He is picking fights everywhere. He loves Delilah. He's revealing his strength to an unbeliever, and the list goes on and on and on. Now, what would most of us say about Samson at this point in his life? Aren't you supposed to be one of God's people? Or maybe uh, we might say as anachronistic as it sounds, and you're supposed to be a Christian, Samson. As we read about the life of Samson, one of the things that is important for us to see is that God uses means to accomplish his will, and he will not always do things in a way that, is, that seems like conventional wisdom to us. God used the raising of Moses' hand to help Israel win a battle. God uses the striking of a rock, which just so happened to be an act of disobedience on Moses' part, to bring water out of a rock. God used a donkey to correct Balaam, and if he can use a donkey, he can use people like you and I. In the case of Samson, God chose to put Samson's power in his hair. Samson may have forgotten that and thought that the power really lied in him. It doesn't take much for us to start to think that way. The next thing you know, we think the power was really in Moses' staff, and we're looking for Moses' staff for $29.99 from a televangelist somewhere. We can get very superstitious superstitious when it comes to where the power of God lies. So Samson's sins eventually catch up to him, and we see one of the most severe consequences in verse 20, which says this, but he did not know that the Lord had left him. As people made in the image of God, we are always to be saying to God, Thy will be done. But there are times when God actually says to us, Thy will be done. After going through a litany of sins committed in, in Romans chapter 1, on a multitude of occasions, God says, He gave them up. Or Paul says, He gave them up. Or He gave them over. He is in essence saying, thy will be done. But there is a way in which he does this with his people as well. We know that God is everywhere. In Psalm 139, it says, where shall I flee from your presence? That same psalmist also says in another place, how long, O Lord, will you forget me Forever, How long will you hide your face from me? So how do we reconcile a God who is everywhere leaving Samson? If you have been a Christian for a while, you may have had the experience of feeling the presence of God in such a way where it almost seemed like it was tangible, where you are just overwhelmed by his presence. I believe it was Spurgeon who recounted a time when he was so deep in prayer and he felt so close to God 
that when he was done praying and opened his eyes, he was surprised to find himself on earth amongst men because he was so high and so lifted up into the heavens in prayer. We should relish these moments of closeness to God when they happen. When God makes himself known in these special ways, it is often to demonstrate his power, to strengthen our faith, and to help us in our walk with him. We see this all over the pages of scripture. This is not something that he should be or is required to do, but he does it because we are sinners who need these types of confirmations and encouragements. But there are also times when we feel distant from God. Even though the spirit of God dwells inside of his people, it still says in 1 Thessalonians, do not quench the spirit. That is to say, there is a sense in which we can impede the Holy Spirit's work in us. There are times when we have dry seasons in our walks, times when God feels very far away, And there are a number of reasons why this can happen. It can happen as we face the trials and tribulations of this life. It can happen when we aren't engaging in the ordinary means of grace that God has given to us. It can happen simply because God wants to use the distancing of himself to draw us closer to him. But it can also happen because we are continuously sinning against God, and I think that is what is happening with Samson. There are several instances in Scripture, specifically in the Old Testament, where God's Spirit is said to enter into someone, and where God's Spirit is later on said to leave that same person. This happens with God's people, and it even happens with unbelievers in the Old Testament. Either way, reading those last few words in verse 20 it can be a very scary thing to think about. The removal of Samson's hair seemed to be the last straw, and that was from his Nazarene vow. And it gets even worse as the narrative progresses. As much as Samson has sinned to this point, as bad as his situation might be, even though God left him, he did not forsake him. And there is a big difference between the two. In that psalm I referenced earlier, Psalm 13, where he asked, how long will you hide your face from me? David felt that the presence of God was gone, but it was not unto eternal judgment. It was not an everlasting forsaking. It was a temporary turning away of God's face, as it were. Later on in that same psalm, I want you to listen carefully to what David says. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. David may have been dealing with a very difficult situation, but he knows ultimately that he still has his salvation. Samson may not be obeying God as he ought, but he had faith 
and the promised Messiah. If you don't believe me, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. This, is chapter, this chapter is well known as the Hall of Faith. After going through a list of many names of the faithful saints of old, we read this in verse 32. And what more shall I say? Time will not allow me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Just in this short list of names alone, we have an adulterer, a doubter, a fornicator, and more. And I won't even get into the rest of the names earlier on in this chapter. I hate to break it to you if you don't know this already, but Hebrews 11 is not a hall of faith. Actually, I take that back. I do want to break it to you. <laughs> it, could be just, it could just as easily be called a hall of shame. And yet, what do we see said about Samson? Time will not allow for me to tell of him. The writer of Hebrews is in essence fawning over Samson. If you are like me, you may wonder why God would include the likes of Samson in a list of faithful men and women. It is important to note that everyone on the list in Hebrews have two things in common. They were all great sinners, but more importantly, they all had a faith in a savior who was greater than all of their sins. One of the reasons why you and I might wonder why Samson would be included in this list and considered faithful is that we really do all have an inner Pharisee who wants to see works righteousness by the law. Some of us in our heart of hearts are embarrassed by the sins of David with Bathsheba. Some of us might really want to skip over the book of Judges in our devotions. Maybe there are even Christians you know who are not living up to your expectations. Don't get me wrong, there are Christians and biblical characters who do not present anything like what we see in the life of Samson. I'm not trying to give license to a sinful lifestyle. However, what I am trying to emphasize is that we are saved by grace through faith. Where it might not seem to be the case if you look at someone's life on the outside, we don't always know what's in their hearts. In the parable of the soil, the seeds that fell on good soil all produced a crop. They all bore fruit, but not all of them produced the same amount of fruit. Some produced a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, and some thirty. I love the fact that the Bible does not whitewash the lives of God's people. If you think that all of God's people have well-manicured lives, then the book of Judges is for you. If you think that a Christian would never fill in the blank, then the book of Judges is for you. It is easy for us, as we are reading about the life of Samson, to shake our heads. We are quick to find people who we think we are better than. But if we keep Christ as our standard, we will have no reason to point the finger at others. 
I was taking my daughter to school a few weeks ago, uh, and I had her listen. I had her listen. I had, she likes listening to podcasts like I do sometimes, and I had her listen to a podcast that was talking about the dangers of screen time. I thought to myself, she really needs to hear this podcast because she, you know, we control her screen time and everything, but she enjoys it a lot. And I very quickly, as we started driving, started thinking about my own personal struggles with screen time that I would never reveal to my daughter. If you ever find yourself saying to yourself, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this sermon, there's a good chance that you're the one who needs to hear it more than anyone else. As the saying goes, in order to point the finger, you have to point three back at yourself. Again, what we have in Hebrews 11 is not a list of faithful men and women with well-manicured lives. What we have is a list of sinners who have been saved by the grace of God. And if they qualify for the Hall of Fame, then so do you and I. The object of our faith isn't any different than Samson's. And as Trey pointed out a couple of weeks ago, that faith is in the greater Samson, our Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Though Samson's sins had temporal consequences, thanks be to God, they were not eternal ones. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we do thank you that when you look at us, you do not see us according to our sins, but you see us wholly righteous before you in Christ. Lord, thank, we're thankful, Lord, that we know that we are grievous sinners, but that Christ is greater than all of our sins. We praise you for this. We ask you help us to remember this in the power of your spirit. And we do ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.